Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. Oh, <laughs> 
lives in our homes and our houses with us, leads us and guides us on a daily basis. Praise your holy name. We ask you, Father, for your special help for today's topic. Help us to let go of what Babylon has taught us. Help us to understand the scriptures more fully, more accurately. Help us to understand spiritual things. Help us to go past elementary and on to the deeper, more spiritual things. Please help us to think more spiritually and consider the spirit of the laws, the spirit of the word, the spirit of the scriptures and what you are speaking to us today. Help us to not be hung up in limited knowledge of thousands of years ago, but let us now grow to the maturity that is intended for the end time church. Give us strength for the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. Give us empowerment from on high, discernment, spiritual gifts, boldness and bravery, faith. Help us to live clean and acceptable to you. We pray, Father, your will be done in all of this, and that your spirit, your word, and your will prevail in this service today and forevermore. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Praise God. Amen. Greetings, everybody, brothers, sisters across the world. I hope that you're having a good day or a good night. We live in a a world of trouble, but we do have the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, that gives us peace and strength to see our way through the storm. He gives us joy, peace, comfort in the midst of great tribulation. Amen. Praise God. We're going to start in 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. For the record, today's date is July the 1st. First day of July, 2017 A.D., the year of our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. In God's created calendar, it is probably the seventh day of the fourth month. Seventh day of the fourth month. Subject today, as we're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Subject today is, is the Bible truly always 100% the literal 
accurate Word of God. Is the Bible always 100% literal, accurate Word of God and not the Word of man? Well, that's what we have been taught by a lot of different denominations. That's why they teach in the Baptist Church, the Pentecostal Church. That is what the King James only people teach about the King James Version Bible. And some of those people may take out the word literal and still say that the Bible is always 100% accurate word of God and that every word in the Bible is the word of God. Is that true? Let's look at a couple of verses that they try to get this from and look at what the Bible really says. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture, all Scripture, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What this verse does not say, but yet people have been taught to read into this verse, is that every word of Scripture is the word of God. Does not say it. But that's what we've been taught to read into it. And even though many of you are jumping through the ceiling already, just give me time to share with you other verses, other scriptures, because we do not want to go by one verse theology. It does say all scripture is inspired by God and profitable but it does not say that all of Scripture is the Word of God. A person can be inspired by God without being the Word of God. I would give you some examples. And one of those examples is in 1 Corinthians 7. So I'd like for you to put a bookmark here at 2 Timothy 6, or 3 rather, 2 Timothy 3, where we're at. Put a bookmark there, because we'll probably go back to that. And turn for a moment to one or for a few minutes, 1 Corinthians Seven, because again, you have to read the whole Bible. You have to read every word of the Bible before you will fully understand the Bible. If we think, if we think that we can read only here and only there, 
and not read the whole Bible and understand it, we're deceiving ourselves. How can you watch a movie and watch five minutes here and five minutes there and not watch the whole movie and think that you know everything about that movie? You can't do it. You might have a brief summary, a somewhat of an understanding of the movie, but you're not really going to get the full understanding of that movie or of the scripture without reading the whole thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, Paul says to the church in the, in the town of Corinthian, of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, But this I say by way of concession, not of command. What he's saying there is what I'm about to say or what I am saying is not what God told me to write. It's not what God told me to write. It's not by command. God did not command me. Jesus did not command me write this as he did Moses. He did command Moses write this but he did not command Paul to write what he was talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7, where he's given advice to people to stay single. If you read the whole chapter, Paul is advising people, not by the commandment of the Lord, but his own personal pastoral advice for people to stay single so that they can focus all their time and all their energy on serving the Lord rather than serving their husband, serving their wife, their children, being occupied by all the, the duties and responsibilities that go along with being married and having a family, that it would be best to be single as he himself was a single man. And as a single man who was an apostle and, and, and prophet and evangelist and pastor and teacher of the church of God, he needed to be single. He didn't have time for a love life and a family. And it was good advice that we also know that the scriptures also say that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall go and cleave unto his wife, that they shall be one flesh. It is God's will for people to get married. It is God's will that people get married but yet not every one of them. Paul does explain that it is not the will of God for every person to be married, that some are meant from birth to be single all of their lives. We know that the book of Revelation prophesies 144,000 virgin men during the Great Tribulation. And that is literal. Many people think it's symbolic. 
but I firmly, without any doubt in me at all, believe that that is literal. But yet, I do not believe that every word in the entire Bible is literal. If we believe that every word in the Bible is literal, every word, then we must also believe that there's going to be a dinosaur with seven heads and ten horns, Revelation 13, a dinosaur, seven, a beast, seven heads and ten horns will rise up out of the sea. And yet people will still argue with me, debate with me, and say, how do we know that that's not literal? How do we know that that's not literal, that there won't be a beast of seven heads and ten horns? Come on now. Come on now. Won't the people have a little bit of common sense? Let us exercise common sense. For one thing, the book of Revelation, John was seeing a prophetic vision. So you must read all scripture in context of what is actually occurring. Why is this person writing this? We have to ask ourselves, why was John writing about a seven-headed, ten-horned beast? It's because he was seeing a prophetic vision. And prophetic visions and prophetic dreams, they are filled with symbolism. Filled with symbolism. And so we know that not every word in the Bible is literal. Much of it is, and yet much of it is symbolism. And then there's other places in the Bible where it's analogy, not necessarily literal nor symbolism, but analogy, where it's using examples made-up examples, such as all the parables where Jesus describes the kingdom and the resurrections and the harvests as being a field of people going out in the field working. Yet the kingdom is not actually us going out planting fruits and vegetables and working and watering the seed Every day, it's not literally that we have to go and raise plants and fruits and vegetables in order to go to heaven. Come on now. And so that is made up analogy, made up stories. All the parables are made up, fictional, not true, made up stories. They are not the literal truth that yet people have debated with me and, and argued and said, all the parables are true. Every parable is true. People will tell you that. These people don't have any sense. They just say it the way it is. People don't have any sense. 
And that's why a lot of people must rise in the second resurrection and be given a good mind, a good mind without mental retardation, without mental illness, that they may be able to understand the scriptures better. And so, but Paul here is writing as a man who is single, who knows how that benefits him in his service to the Lord. And he's like, I want you to also benefit the way I do in the service of the Lord. But yet Paul does tell us that this is not the word of God, what he is saying. It's just his advice. And he does say that it is better to marry than to burn in your lust if you cannot control your flesh. And you go out a whoring and committing fornication, then it's better to settle down And look at verse 10. Verse 10, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. So there he says, now I was talking to you about my advice, but now I'm going to tell you what the Lord says. So he makes a difference between certain verses and other verses. So how can we say, that every verse and every word is the word of God by using 2 Timothy 3, which Paul himself wrote. Paul wrote the book of Timothy. He was writing to Timothy. And in one place, Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And yet in another place, he says, that it's not God speaking, but just myself, of my own accord. Does he contradict himself? No. A person can be inspired and not actually writing down, dictating the word of God. So I can dictate to a secretary and she would write down every word, word by word, exactly what I say. And that's what Moses did. And that was the word of God. But if I say to the secretary, I want you to go and write an invoice or article for me on my behalf, I send you forth, I empower you, I authorize you to go and write this. Then my secretary would be the one writing it. And it would be inspired by me. But not every word she writes is my word because she's no longer dictating what I'm saying because I'm not saying it to her. She's writing it on her own accord, her own ideals, her own words, her own uh, way of thinking, but yet I sent her to do that. So Paul was sent 
to be a minister to the people. He was sent to the people. He was inspired to write letters to Timothy. He was inspired to write letters to the Corinthians. But not every word he wrote was the word of God. He had freedom and liberty to write of his own opinion, of his own personal advice. And we see that also in chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Well, we'll get that later. I don't want to go to that yet right now. Chapter 11. We'll come back to chapter 8. But go to chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul tells the Corinthians, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, that word traditions there means customs, things that are taught by men. It's not talking about the word of God. He doesn't say the word commandments. He doesn't say the word law. He's saying traditions. Now, he wasn't teaching Christmas and Easter and all those pagan traditions, but he was teaching traditions of society of which he had came from, lessons he had learned in life, uh, things that he had adopted from uh, his lifespan of things that he had learned uh, coming from a Roman city, from the Roman Empire during the time of the height of the Roman Empire. And so then it goes on to look over here to verse 4. Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Yet if you go to the Old Testament, what Moses wrote and what God told Moses to write is that the priests serving in the temple would wear a hat. The priests in the temple were commanded to wear something on their head while praying. While they were serving in the temple, while they were uh, sacrificing animals, all of that. So this, in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4, is not the word of God. It is not the word of God. The word of God, where God told Moses directly, Write down exactly what I'm writing, what I'm saying to you, dictate, I dictate to you, and he wrote it down, the words of God for the men in the temple to wear hats. But Paul says, a man should not wear a hat. Who's right? Paul or God? The answer is clear. God is right. It is not a sin for a man to wear a hat in church, not a sin. 
But yet, a lot of men, most men, when they go to church, they will take their hats off out of respect because of their modern-day Western mindset tradition, custom that was taught to them by their daddy, that was taught to them by their daddy, by their daddy, by their daddy, who got it from Paul. They didn't get it from God. And then he's talking about hair and that women should have long hair and that a man should not have long hair, a man should have short hair. And it comes over here to verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. King James says, a shame to him. Now notice he does not use the word sin. He does not say that it's a sin for man to have long hair, only a dishonor or a shame. Did God say that? Or did Paul say that? If we look at Numbers chapter 6, which I won't turn there right now, but you can write it down in your notes. But Numbers chapter 6 tells us about the Nazarite vow where any man, any man, that wants to dedicate his life totally unto the Lord, totally unto God, that he is to grow his hair. And we know that John the baptizer was a Nazarite, meaning a person that had the vow of growing his hair all the way from his birth to his death. He never in all of his life, John the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, the one that led the way, that prepared the way for the Lord to announce the coming of the Messiah. He never, in all of his entire life, can you imagine how long his hair was? It was probably down past his waist, maybe down to the floor. Never in his entire life did he ever trim, cut in any way, not even trim his hair his entire life. The same was true for uh, Samuel and Samson. So we don't have just one example or two examples, but we have several examples. And never, ever, ever did God condemn any man in the entire Bible for having long hair. Jesus never condemned a man for having long hair. Neither did Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, the Jerusalem Council, Daniel, Micah, and so on, and so on, and so on. Only Paul, only, only Paul condemned men for having long hair. 
is that the word of God or is that the word of Paul? Very clearly, it's only Paul's personal advice from his own traditions, verse 1, his own customs because even though he was of the Jewish bloodline, he was living in the Roman Empire. And he was born in a Roman city of Tyrus, a Roman-controlled city. And so the civilization of the time was teaching him the customs and traditions of the Roman Empire, even though he was a Jew. In the Roman Empire, the men kept their hair short, but the Hebrews, it was not so. Long hair on a man, on a Hebrew man, was considered a sign of honor, wisdom, and holiness. But then, look at verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, meaning if they disagree with what I have said about women and men and the length of their hair and wearing hats and stuff like this, that if one be contentious, if they disagree, we have no other custom or practice or tradition. Neither have the churches of God. In other words, everything I just said between verse 1 and verse 15, forget it. If it causes a problem, if there's going to be strife, there's going to be division, forget everything I just said in verse 1 to verse 15. It is not the Lord. It is not the Word of God. It is only His custom. The word tradition in verse 2 and the word custom in verse 16. So everything between that is only His custom. Only his tradition, not the say of the Lord. Paul was a human. He was not Jesus Christ. I wish I wish people would get that into their minds, into their heads. Paul was not Jesus Christ. Paul was not our Savior. Paul was not God, and Paul is not infallible that people act as if the words of Paul are perfect and that every word that breathed out of his mouth from the time he was born to the time he died was the perfect word of God as if he was Jesus. He was not Jesus, and his word is not infallible. But people treat Paul the same way the Catholics treat the Pope. The Catholic says that the Pope, the ever word that comes out of his mouth, is infallible, meaning it can't be wrong. That is what the Catholics teach. That every word that the Pope says and writes has to be that it is the word of God. That everything the Pope says is the infallible, perfect word of God. And that is the way that, that the Baptists and the Pentecostals and everybody else treats Paul. They treat him as if he was Jesus Christ and as if he is the Pope of the Baptist and Pentecostal Church.
Now, was Paul wrong when he wrote to Timothy and said that all Scripture is profitable, inspired of God? But one thing, these verses here can be profitable to us. These verses, even though they are only Paul's personal advice, not the Word of God, just his customs, his traditions of his society and his time, they can still be profitable to us. Because we can look at these words and understand that what Paul was really, really, really talking about about the head coverings, that women should have a head covering and men should not, is Paul wasn't really, really talking about uh, uh, so much about hair as much as what he was talking about, that a woman, when she is ministering in the church congregation, that she should have a head covering on her head to symbolize, to represent to the congregation that she is not stepping out of line, but rather that she is still in submission to the male pastor and to her husband. That is what his real point was, if you look at all of those words that he wrote in these verses here. He was trying to get the people to understand that the head of the church is Christ, and then you have the male pastor, and then the other male ministers. But a woman can pray and prophesy in the church as long as she has a visual representation, symbolism, showing that she is under the authority of her husband and of the male leadership. And that is biblical. And that is good. And that is accurate. And that is the will of God. But he was using flesh and blood carnal analogies to make his point. And so people go by the letter of the law of what Paul wrote and forget the spirit of the law. Why is he writing this? Why is he really trying to say? I don't think Paul was really and truly that fanatic about hair length and heads as much as he was really just trying to get the point across that there needs to be law and order in the church service. And we need to recognize that God did ordain male leadership. That was his point. That was his real, real point that he was trying to teach. If it was really about hair length and heads, then he would not say, just forget it. 
if it was really about hats and hair length, if that was really, really, really his point about hair and hats, he would not say just forget it. And when he did say just forget it if it causes trouble, he wasn't talking about how we should exercise authority and law and order in the church. He wasn't wasn't saying forget about that. When he said in verse 16, if there's a problem, then we don't have no custom like this, just forget it. He was not talking about that it's okay to have women pastors and it's okay for there to be confusion and that the woman should not submit herself and stuff like that. He wasn't saying forget to his real point. He wasn't saying just forget his real point, but he was saying just forget about the hair and the heads. Just forget about his flesh, blood, carnal analogy. So this all goes back to considering what is the context? Why was the person writing? What was their real point? And what is the spirit of the law? Not the letter. People get so obsessed with the letter. People get so obsessed by the letter. And what I mean by that is they say, it says right here. It says right here. This has to be true. And they forget the spirit of why he's saying it. It really has nothing to do with hair and heads. It's all about the proper gender roles. And so the spirit of the law is the proper gender roles is what Paul was actually trying to teach. And that was inspired by God. The proper gender roles, his true point that he was trying to get across was inspired by God and profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction. But the analogy that he used was just his own words and not what God told him to write. He was a human man grasping for straws, reaching for analogies to try to help the people understand. Just as I myself has used the example of McDonald's, restaurants and businesses and stores and and human government as analogies and examples to get the people to understand. Even as Jesus himself used the analogy and the symbolism of working in a field and so forth. We have to look at what is really being taught and stop taking every word as if it is literal. And let's go to 2 Timothy chapter, I mean 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, and look at another verse that people try to use to say that every word in the Bible is the word of God, and none of it is the word of man. None of it is just Paul's personal 
advice or anything like that, but it's all the word of God, they say. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, we must understand that is talking about prophecy. And that is different than hair and heads. Amen. Underline the word prophecy. People would take this out of context and say this says, which it doesn't, but they say this says that every word of the Bible is the literal word of God. It doesn't say it. Is talking about prophecy. And that all prophecy, talking about prophecy written in Scripture, talking about Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the prophecies of the son of perdition, the end time, the day of the Lord, the invasion of Israel, the prophecies of the coming of the Messiahs, all these things. These things, the prophecies written by the Holy Prophets. They were moved by the Holy Spirit, and those things was the Word of God. Those things were spoken by God. Those things was dictated to Daniel. Those things was dictated to Ezekiel. Those things was dictated to John. Amen. And they wrote them down. It says nothing about the words of Paul concerning heads and hair. It says nothing about the Song of Solomon where, where Solomon is singing a song about breasts. It says nothing about that. It says nothing about Ecclesiastes where Solomon is venting his frustration about the vanity that we're here today and going tomorrow. It says nothing about the traditions and customs of Paul. It's talking about the prophecies. Amen. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, and before I read this, 
I want to mention a little bit more about what it said in 2 Timothy 3 that the all scripture is uh, inspired of God and um, profitable for doctrine. Paul wrote that at a time when the only Bible that they had was the Greek Septuagint Old Testament. He wasn't writing and talking about his own writing. He wasn't talking about 1 Corinthians. He wasn't talking about 2 Corinthians. He wasn't talking about any of the New Testament. The only scripture, all scripture is profitable for doctrine. The only scripture that he was talking about, all scripture, is inspired of God, is the Old Testament. He wasn't saying that his own writings, Paul never said that his own writings, his every word that he wrote was the word of God. He never said that. He never wrote it that. He never hinted to that. He never alluded to that, that his own writings was every word the word of God. Because even he himself on repeated occasions said that certain things was not of the Lord but of his own words. And then another thing, another point about that is it says scripture. It does not say translation. All scripture, talking about Old Testament scripture, was inspired of God. It does not say all translation. It does not say all King James Version translation. There's a difference between what Paul was talking about with Scripture was Old Testament Greek Sutudian. He was not in any way, in any shape, in any form talking about the King James Bible. The King James Bible didn't even exist, did not exist for another almost 1,600 years after he wrote that verse. He was in no way talking about every translation that would come along a thousand and five hundred or six hundred years after that. But yet King James Version people will pull out that verse in two Corinthians three, I mean two Timothy three, verse sixteen, and say this proves that all scripture, that the King James Version Bible is 100% accurate word of God. How ignorant can anybody get? Ignorant. Paul was not talking about a translation in a different language that would come about 1,600 years Later, he was talking about the Bible they had then, the Greek Tertullian Old Testament. He was not talking about his own writings. He was not talking about his letters that he was writing to the Corinthians. And he was not talking about translations that would come thousands of years later. 
Amen. You have to consider what was the person talking about. Amen. But even when you look at the Old Testament, was it the Word of God when Paul, I mean, not Paul, Solomon was carrying on and on and on and on about a love between a man and a woman and how much he admired her breasts and her beauty and her lips and everything else? Was that the word of God? I don't think so. The Song of Solomon, I don't think, should even be in the Bible. The Song of Solomon is nothing but a song written by a man that was already on his way to deserting God. Solomon left God. He deserted God. He fell away from God because of his lust and over-fascination with women that God warned him about. And so Song of Solomon is nothing more than a lust-filled man who is already on his, on his road to the lake of fire, unless he repents in the second resurrection. A man that walked away from God because of women singing about a woman. And it says absolutely nothing about God until you get to just almost the last verse of the song. And when Solomon, when he was writing that song, he wasn't writing scripture. He was writing a song. It was not considered scripture by the people who lived in the time of Solomon, nor in the next generation nor in the next generation, nor in the next generation did they consider that song as scripture. It was not considered as scripture until the Bible was put together by the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church said, let's take this song and 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 this poem and this book, and this letter, and this scroll, and this context, context, and so on, and so on, and let them put all together in a single manuscript. People don't understand that the Bible was not written as one book. It was not written as one book. It was not written as two books. It was not written as three books. It was not written as four books. It was written as many, many, many different books, scrolls, 
poems, songs, and so forth. And gathered together by men who just said who said, We want to put all this together in two books, and then eventually one book. And now let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we are advocates in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our advocacy is from God, who also made us advocate as servants of a new covenant, not of the latter, but of the Spirit. For the latter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came of glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to even more With glory. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. What he's talking about is that first we had the Old Testament with all the ordinances and the killing of goats and the stoning for adultery and the stoning for homosexuality and the clean unclean meats and, and so on and so on and so on. And all that had its glory and all that had its importance and all that had its place. But now we have a new covenant where we no longer have to worry about the whether or not we can eat pork. We don't have to worry about that we take judgment in our own hands and stone every homosexual and every witch we come across. We don't take judgment into our own hands like that. It's in the hands of the Lord. He's coming back with laughs and he would take care of it. And we don't have to worry about being circumcised in the flesh because we, we need to be circumcised in the heart instead. So we have a better covenant now. And it has more glory. And the glory of the new covenant surpasses the glory of the old covenant. Verse 12, therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Unless you've got people... Nah, Verse 13, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. The face of Moses glowed like a glow stick because he had saw, he had actually been in the presence of a little bit, a little bit of the glory of God 
and that was connected with the giving of the ordinances and the law and everything. But after the face of Moses glowed for such a long time, and he put a veil over his face for the reason that the people would not see that it was fading away. 14, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, not talking about the Old Testament, people get this wrong, but the Old Covenant, the clean and clean meats, the circumcision, the letter of the law, until this day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is is removed in Christ. In other words, only until we come to Christ can we really see that salvation is in the spirit of the law through Jesus Christ and not in the letter of the law. I'll say that again. That not until we come to Jesus Christ and really, 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 really come to really know him, really know him, know what it means to call him Lord, really have him living in our life, really have him as our Lord and our master, and we're truly following him. Only then can we really come to really comprehend and understand the spirit of the law, why it was given, why all that had been given in the first place and what God really wanted us to do. Paul was talking about hair and heads. And God was talking about blood and goats, animals and foreskin. But God's true point was, I want you to be separate from the heathen. I want you to be separate holy, peculiar priesthood, a holy people, separate from the world. I want you to be different from the world. And I want you to love me and love fellow mankind and treat everybody right. That don't mean you have to appease evil, but treat people right. We must understand the spirit of the law. And it's only by really coming to know Jesus Christ that we come to understand it's not about foreskin. And it's not about heads and hair. But it's about love and the spirit of the law. And that a woman should love her husband, honor her husband, respect her husband, respect the pastor and the male leadership of the church, and not feel that she has to exert herself over them as if she's got something to prove. Women should not feel like that they're being oppressed by God, oppressed by the male leadership of the church. They should not feel like they got something to prove. But rather that they should accept that God has given them a role in the church, that they can pray in the congregation, that they can sing in the congregation, that they can prophesy in the congregation, 
but it needs to be with respect to the proper gender roles that is, is the perfect will of God for the, to be male leadership. And if we have a problem with that, we should take it up with the Lord and not try to assert the authority over the men in the congregation. And so continuing here in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 15, but to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, now, now that we are looking at Christ, now that we're looking at Christ and not the old covenant, we have an unveiled face. Think of the marriage supper where you're standing, the bride, the church is standing there. See, as the church, we are all the woman in the church. And we all need to learn how to submit ourselves. And we are all the bride that is learning how to submit ourselves to our husband. We're all part of that bride. Symbolically, spiritually speaking, we know that I'm not a woman and that I'm not literally going to have a veil that I lift up off my head at the marriage supper. So again, these are spiritual symbolisms and analogies. And so, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, the more that we take on his image, the more that we start speaking like him, acting like him, talking like him, looking like him, the more that we become his children, looking like our father. So people's got to stop using that excuse. I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You're supposed to look like him, talk like him, walk like him, think like him. We have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. You're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus. It's a sorry, no good excuse. Amen. It's a no good excuse for people that don't want to obey God and people that just want to ridicule and persecute those that do serve the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. One Corinthians two. Now, when I came to you, Paul says to the Corinthian church, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. 
For I determined to know nothing, uh, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what he's saying to them is, I didn't come to your congregation acting like I was a big shot, using fancy words and trying to use big, long, fancy words and trying to prove who I am and showing you my college degree and all that, but teaching Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. See, Paul, a lot of people don't know this, that Paul started preaching as soon as he got saved, according to what the Bible says. He had been struck blind by the Lord, and he sent the man to go pray over him and and anoint him and to tell him to be baptized. And Paul was baptized that very night. He received back his sight. He got saved and baptized. And he went and started preaching immediately. So he started preaching as a baby in Jesus Christ. And when when you're a baby in Jesus Christ or young in the Lord, you're going to have fear. And again, when God gives you gifts, spiritual gifts, prophecy or tongues or preaching or office or administration in the church, it doesn't mean that you're perfect at it right away. You're not a perfect prophet from day one. You're not a perfect pastor from day one. And you're not a perfect Christian from day one. Paul went to this congregation when he was young in the Lord with a lot of fear and trembling. A lot of preachers, very nervous, and <laughs> their hands are shaking bad, and they're all, all nervous. I've seen, I've seen preachers who have been preaching for years and years and years, and yet when they go to a, another church, when they're invited to preach at another church, and his uh, his normal every week congregation goes along to that new church with him to support him while he's preaching to the other church. And notice they act like they had never preached in their life. They act like this first time they got on stage and they're just stumbling over their words and you can see them literally shaking. I've seen this. And I'm not condemning them. But it is natural. It is natural. And Paul went to this church trembling in fear. In verse 4, And my message and my preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So even though he was shaking and trembling and fearful and young in the Lord, but he knew God. He knew Jesus. And he still spoke somewhat boldly and was not trying to be a big shot and was not trying to show off by fancy words. Now remember that Paul had been a chief of the Pharisees. He was highly educated, extremely highly educated. He could have went there and like really showed off his education. 
He could have went there and used all kinds of fancy words and fancy knowledge and fancy college, all that. But instead, he had a heart of humility, humbled himself, was trembling, and stood there not as a college professor and not as a chief of Pharisees, but as a man that had been stricken by the Lord humbled by the Lord, brought to his knees by the Lord, and came as a servant to these people. Amen. In verse 6, Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor, well, we do, I'm going to say that, read that again, verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. I want you to notice something here. We had read just a while ago about the glory fading away of the old covenant. And notice, underline this word glory. And underline the words passing away in verse 6. The last word of verse 6, passing away. In verse 7, the word glory. This is the Spirit at work here. Amen. Verse 6, again, verse 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So you don't give meat to the immature. And I wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, even as the old covenant was passing away, so was the Levitical priesthood had passed away. The leaders and the high priests was no longer recognized by God. These leaders of the Pharisees were passing away, and Paul had passed away from being a leader of Pharisees. So these rulers of this age and the Jewish rulers and all those people were passing away. Those people that were given the letter of the law were all passing away. Verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to this glory. Notice it is a hidden wisdom, not given to all mankind. Jesus spoke in parables so that only those that truly loved him and truly followed him could understand, but to the world, to the Pharisees, to the letter of the law people, they could not understand. It was hidden to them. Their eyes were closed. Their ears were shut. God had shut and closed the eyes and ears of those that had focused on the law because their eyes, their true heart, the eyes of their heart was not on the Lord. Verse 7 again, but we speak wisdom in a mystery, in a mystery, in a parable, in analogies, in spiritual symbolisms, hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, 
the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It calls Jesus, Paul called Jesus, the Lord of glory. Underline that because that's another proof that Jesus is God, the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But, verse 10, explains that even though in verse 9 that it says that the things that God has done and planned have not entered mankind, ears and hearts, that's talking about the lost in verse 9. See, that verse 9 is taken completely, completely, completely out of context by every every minister I have ever heard preached in my entire life, or at least every Baptist and Pentecostal minister. And I see that verse 9 there all over the internet and all over these daily devotionals and all that, and none of them understand that verse. They all twist it, take it out of context, and twist it to mean that we don't understand. And that's not at all what it's saying. Again, you have to look at the whole context. So one verse theology would take that and make a false doctrine out of it. And it's not that it's not that verse nine is a false doctrine, but rather that people take it out of context and make it into a false doctrine. Verse nine is definitely inspired of God. Everything we're reading in this chapter right here, you see the Spirit at work today. Amen. What you have already seen and heard this day of July 1st, 2017 is equal to and greater than seeing lightning and thunder. You want to see lightning and thunder? You want to see God? You want to hear God out loud? You just heard something better today. Stronger, more powerful, more divine. You heard God speak today. You heard and saw lightning and thunder today. And you do every week on this sermon. Every, every week you hear and see thunder. Amen. For verse 9, talking about a carnal man, talking about a man that's lost, that don't have the Spirit of God, that these things, things which the eye has not seen and heard, because their eyes and ears are closed by the Lord, so they cannot understand the mysteries of God, keeping it in context. Things which ear, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But verse 10, 
should have the word but in front of it. King James does, and I believe it ought to here as well. But to us, God revealed them. To us, God revealed them. To the lost, they're not revealed. To the lost, their eyes and ears are closed. They have not seen the lightning and the thunder. But verse 10, we have seen the lightning and the thunder already. When we read the word glory, when we read the word passing away, when we had just read the other chapter about glory and passing away. Verse 10, but to us God revealed them through the Spirit, not through the law, and not even through the Bible. The Bible is good. The Scripture is good. We should read it. I promote it. I promote it and I promote it and I promote it and I promote it. You know I do. But what is better than the written letter in the Scripture is to hear the voice of God. And you do that by reading the Scripture as we do and putting the Scripture to practice not being just a hearer, hearer of, the, of the law or of the word, but a doer of the word, putting it to practice. And the more that you read the Bible and put it to practice, the more you will hear the voice of God. And it will get stronger and more active and more often and stronger and louder and more active and more active and more active every few months, every year, every year, after year, after year, after year. None of us is a grown adult from day one. So I really encourage you, multiple people I'm talking to, multiple people I'm talking to, don't be so discouraged just because that you are not yet full of the wisdom of a hundred-year-old man. Don't be discouraged that you don't have the wisdom of a pastor that's been preaching for years. None of us are a full-grown adult in the Lord from day one, month one, or year one. Amen. It takes time. And never, ever, ever compare yourself with somebody else. Don't compare yourself that's been serving the Lord too, too, too many twice as many years as you, or three as many years, or four as many years as you've been serving the Lord. Don't compare yourself with somebody else. Only compare yourself with yourself. Only compare yourself with your past. Have you changed? How much have you changed? What have you come out of? Where has God brought you from? And compare yourself to the Lord. His way, his walks, his word, his will, his spirit. Compare yourself only to yourself and to the Lord and not to any other man or woman. Now look here again in verse verse 10. For to us God revealed them the mysteries of God, even the deep things of God. For God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. 
For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? What that means is men know manly things. Women know womenly things. Humans know humanly things. Cats know cat things. Dogs know dog things. Humans know human things. Then it says, even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. So to know God things, we have to have his spirit because God knows God. And the spirit of God knows the spirit of God. And the spirit knows spiritual things. And we cannot know godly spiritual things without having the godly spirit in us. Verse 12, now we have received. Now we have received the knowledge, the understanding of the mysteries of God by the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in the words taught by human wisdom, not what we learn in seminary, not what we learn in college, not what we learn from the Pharisees, not what we learn from the Hebrew roots or from the Catholic Church or from this group or that group or from the Jehovah's Witnesses, but what we learn from the Spirit of God. Because God spoke to some of you and told you before you knew anything about this ministry, God spoke to you and said, Saturday is the seventh day. Jehovah is not his name. The why means are not his name. Some of you have told me these different things. And so God speaks to us, leads us, directs us, teaches us, and we read the scriptures and we learn and we grow and we grow and we grow and we grow and we grow. Amen. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, but a natural man, a carnal man, a lost man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They mock and ridicule ridicule the things of God. And he cannot, he cannot, the lost man without the Spirit of God, because he's a carnal man. The Bible says that the, that the, is it the mind of man or the heart of man is uh, enemy against God? And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually appraised. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual, who he who is spiritual, that's what we need. We need to be spiritual people, not religious people. Not the letter of the law people, not Hebrew roots people, not Torah people, not Baptist, not Pentecostal, not Catholic, but spiritual people of the Lord. He who is spiritual appraises all things. We weigh all things. We determine the worthiness of all things. We test all things. We prove all things. He appraises all things. Yet, he himself is appraised by no one. In other words, even though we all have a right to judge, because if we don't judge anybody, then we live a very, 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 very dangerous life 
if you never make a decision, if you never make a discernment, you never make a judgment about rather lit somebody in your car, if you never make a judgment about to lit somebody in your house or to give them money or to help them out, then you live a reckless, dangerous, and foolish life. We all have a right to judge. But, but, if we are walking in the Spirit of God and we are truly saved and we're truly filled with the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, the words of Christ, the feet of Christ, the eyes of Christ, the ears of Christ, the body of Christ, and we are Jesus walking on the earth, symbolically, spiritually speaking, then no man can touch us. No man can touch us. Because I don't care. I don't care. I do care, but I'm not going to let it stand in my way. What people say about me, what people think about me, they can cast their stones, they can pull out their whips, they can peer out, uh, pull out their swords, they can persecute, they can sue, they can threaten, they can march, they can do whatever they want. But I have a forehead, a flint, I have a breastplate, I have an armor on. They are not going to penetrate my armor. I have on the full armor of God. They cannot touch me. Amen. Now I don't care what they say about me. Yet he himself is appraised by no one because your, your ultimate judge is God. Someone emailed me, I guess, yesterday or the day before, and I answered it yesterday. What do I say? How do I respond? The question was. What's my response to the people that or on the internet speaking against me and against my prophecies and saying I'm fake and I'm false and I'm a false prophet. What is, how do I reply to that question was. And my reply is, I will stand to God alone. I will not stand to man. Amen. In verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. So I say this. If we are going to understand the scriptures, and if we are going to become into the full statue of the measure of Christ, then the first step, other than believing, other than praying, other than repenting, is to be baptized. Amen? Let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We all need to be baptized, and we need to make for sure, without a shadow, without a shadow, without a shadow of doubt, that we are baptized in Jesus Christ, that we are not baptized in the Jehovah Witnesses or the Catholic or the Seventh-day Adventists, that we're not baptized in the Baptist, that we're not baptized in somebody's religion or somebody's denomination or somebody's church, but that we are baptized in Jesus Christ. Even Paul, I believe, it was to ask somebody what baptism, maybe Peter or somebody asked somebody, 
what baptism are you baptized with? And they said, we're baptized in the baptism of John. And I'm pretty sure it was Paul said, but you must be baptized in Jesus Christ. It's not good enough to be baptized by a man who believes in the Trinity. It's not good enough to be baptized by a man that keeps Christmas and Easter. It's not good enough to be baptized by a man that keeps Halloween and sends his kids out dressed like Dracula and ghosts and demons. It's not good enough to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when the Bible says that we are to be baptized in his name. And Paul baptized in Jesus' name. And Peter baptized in Jesus' name. And all are baptized in Jesus' name. It's not good enough to be baptized in the false church, in the demon church, in the satanic church, in the Babylonian church. We need to be baptized in Jesus by a true minister of God in Jesus' name and the proper methods and the proper words. And so I tell you that one of the major huge reasons that people have so much trouble understanding Scripture and understanding when it's literal and when it's symbolic when it's just analogy and when it's just a man's venting and when it's just a man's opinion and when it's the word of God and when it's not the word of God and so on is the lack of the spirit that has been weighing on me so heavily lately is the lack of the spirit of God in people. We need to believe that Jesus is God, that he is the only God, that there is no God beside him, that his name is Jesus, and we need to repent for Christmas, Easter, Halloween, Sunday worship. We need to keep the Ten Commandments. We need to pay our tithes first, before the rent, before the electric bill, before anything. Not if I have it left. Not if I can afford it. But we need to obey God first. Amen. And we need to be baptized every one of us, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And we will receive the Holy Ghost. We will receive that power from on high. We will receive that ability to understand that spiritual empowerment from on high that will open up the scriptures to us, that will open our eyes, that will pull the veil, that will pull the mask off our face, that we may see that our eyes may be opened, our ears may be opened, to understand the scriptures. And even then, it will take time, a little at a time, and more and more and more and more, the longer and the longer and the longer and the longer we serve him. But what we must understand is this. We must give up these long-held beliefs that we were saved when we were in Babylon. We must give those up and throw it in the trash and burn it in our hearts and our minds. We must give up these thoughts that we keep holding and holding and holding and holding on to that we were saved when 
We was in the Baptist Church, the Pentecostal Church, and the Catholic Church, and the Jehovah's Witness Church, and all these churches. We was not saved if we was continually keeping Christmas, Easter, believing in a Trinity, and all the other false doctrines. How can we say we were saved when we was keeping satanic holidays? We're not saved until we stop serving Satan with Christmas and Easter and Sunday worship and the Trinity and all that crap and come to the Lord. Lay all that, side, all that stuff aside and come to the Lord and repent and be baptized in Jesus' name. We're not saved being baptized by satanic men who keep Christmas and Easter. We need to be baptized by people who truly, truly, truly serve the Lord. So if you have not yet been baptized in the truth, after you came to the truth, if you have not been baptized since, you really and truly came to the truth, then I really encourage you to do so. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 1. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, even as, even as Paul himself had been a chief of the Pharisees, had been a ruler of the Jews, a highly educated man. He knew the letter of the law. He knew the scriptures. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs, these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And yet people will try to tell you that being born of water and spirit is talking about when you are born from your mom. This is what they teach in Babylon. That the water is when you came from your mother's womb and the water broke. How's that being born again? That was your first birth. How is that being born again? Even Nicodemus made that mistake of thinking that he's talking literal. He's not talking literal of, 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 of being born by a woman. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Amen, amen. I say to you, unless, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot, cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, 
when Jesus used the word water and spirit, it was talking literal. But at the same time, he was also talking spiritually. He wasn't talking about being born in the flesh and blood. So he was talking spiritually. But at the same time, he was talking literal. As in, you literally have to emerge through the water. That you have to emerge and you have to be immersed in water. How do I know that? Read all of John. Read all of John because the book of John is filled with talking about literal water. I'm looking at John 2 now. If you want to look with me, we won't spend too much time on this, but John 2, verse 6. John 2, verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And we know what happened. Jesus turned the water to wine. Then look at John 3, verse 22. John 3:22 After these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he was spending time with them and baptizing John 4 verse 2 John 4 verse 2 although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were John 4, verse 6. John 4, verse 6. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who drinks you, who acts, who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have gave you living water. John 5, verse 3, verse 2. John 5, verse 2. John 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem a sheep gate, uh, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bathsheba, having five porticles. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and wildered, waiting for the moving of the waters. John 6, John 6, verse 18, John 6, verse 18, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, Jesus, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, walking on the water. So on, so on, so on. Go back to John 3. So what I'm saying there is if you read all of John, it's water, 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 
repeatedly. And as soon as Jesus finished teaching Nicodemus that you must be born of water and spirit, in the same chapter, immediately after that, he went out baptizing with water. So we know in the context, considering all the verses, considering the theme of water, Repeatedly, water, 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 over and over and over and over in the book of John. You don't see that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But in John, the only place where Jesus says you must be born of the water is all about water. Amen. So you must be born of water. Even the word baptism actually means emerged, to be immersed in the water. So then, going back to verse 6 now, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the spirit of it, the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going, the wind. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And people say, how can we be born of the Spirit if it says that those people that are born of the Spirit are like the wind? You don't know where it's coming, and you don't know where it's going. Then how can we say we've been born again? Again, you have to read all the Bible. And you can look at Romans 8, verse 9. We'll turn there now. Romans 8, verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's Romans 8, verse 9. So Jesus says that even though you may still have your ten toes and your ten fingers, even though you may look like you're in the flesh, that if you have the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of the Father or the Spirit of Christ, which is it? Which Spirit? Spirit number one, spirit number two, spirit number three, spirit number four, spirit number five. Which spirit? There's only one. The Bible says we are are, are, uh, baptized by one spirit. One spirit. What spirit is it? It says here, if you do not have the spirit of Christ. And yet, Jesus said, before he even died, that you must be born of the Spirit. Which Spirit? That right there proves Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. Right there proves that Jesus Christ is God. 
right there, all by itself. This verse compared to John 3. You must be born of the Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. What Spirit? The Spirit of Christ. That means Christ is the Holy Spirit. That means Christ is God. Right there is proof that Jesus is God. Right there. The Bible is full. Full. Over and over and over, 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 over. You can't count the number of times that it proves that Jesus is God. I think almost every, every sermon that I preach, almost every time we open up the Bible to preach any sermon, any, any topic, we always, usually, almost every time, come across at least one verse that proves that he's God every time. Amen. But the main point here of verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9, is that, hey, you may look flesh and blood, and Jesus may have looked flesh and blood as he was the graven image of God on earth. The Bible says that he was the graven image of God. But he was spirit. And you, if you have the spirit of Christ in you, and you have been immersed in the water in the truth, and in Jesus' name, and actually did receive his spirit in you, if you actually did receive his spirit in you, then you are spirit and have received that seed of immortality. You have received the seed of the Holy Ghost. And that seed must grow in you and continue to grow in you, and continue to grow in you, and continue to grow in you, all the way into the resurrection. And if that seed dies, then you have lost your immortality, and you have lost your salvation. If that seed dies, and you do not bear fruit for the Lord, and you welter away, and the branch will fall from the tree, and be gathered up and thrown into the, into the far pit to be burnt, this is very clear in Scripture. Look at John 3 now. John 3, subject today, is, is the Bible always 100% literal? Is the Bible always 100% literal, accurate Word of God? John 3, verse 53. I mean, 6, 53. John 6, 53. John 6, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, John 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Was that literal? Of course not. Jesus was not teaching that these men around him, that the twelve disciples, had to actually eat his flesh and his blood. He was not a cannibal. He was not teaching cannibalism. This is very clearly symbolism. Very, very, very clear that this is symbolic symbolism. Yet, Jesus was talking about a very literal 
communion, of Passover communion. Because we know that Jesus sat down on his last night on earth before the crucifixion, that is, and took the wine and the unleavened bread at the Passover meal, and he said to them, this is this wine, it is my blood, this is the new covenant shed for you. This bread, this unleavened bread, this bread without leaven, this bread without sin, that I'm going to shed for you. I, he's saying right there that he's God. Because salvation cannot come through man. Salvation cannot come through the death, body, and flesh and blood and toes and fingernails of a normal or any human man. For all men have sinned. All men have sinned. All men have sinned. And if they say they have not sinned, then they are a liar. But Jesus Christ never sinned. That proves that he is God. Proves that he is God. And he's saying that unless you take of his blood, you're not saved. Unless you take of his sacrifice, unless you take of his body, unless you become a body, a member of his body, unless you really take the sacrifice, embrace the sacrifice, accept the sacrifice, accept his death, accept his blood for you, but you have to do it through Passover communion. You have to drink it and eat it. But it's only symbolic. But you still have to eat and drink. The eating and drinking is not symbolic. It is literal. But the blood and the body of the wine and the bread is symbolism. So it's a literal action that you literally have to take and eat and drink, but it's not literally his body and not literally his blood. It's symbolism. Amen. But you are literally merging yourself with him in the spirit. Now, unless you take communion, you're not saved. You can be baptized. You can keep the seventh day. You can keep all the holy days. You can keep all the commandments. You can go to church. You can pay your tithes. You can be good to people. You can love God. You can love fellow man. You can keep every commandment in the Bible and still not be saved unless you take the communion. He says so right here that unless you do this, you have no life in yourself. No life. Talking about eternal life. Only through taking the communion. And that is why that lost people are forbidding from taking communion. The Catholic Church does have at least that one thing right, that communion should be forbidding to outsiders, to people who are not living for God. But the problem is all Catholics are lost, so they should not really be taking communion. You have to be baptized first before you can take communion. Baptism is how you get born again. Baptizing is how you get saved. But then you have to continue the baby steps. You have to continue the next step and the next step and the next step. Because if you just get baptized and you don't keep the seventh day, you don't keep communion, and you don't keep the holy days, then you just threw it all down the drain. 
it's very clear that we can become part of the tree and still fall away. You have to become part of the tree, then become, then start drinking the sap of the inner blood of the tree, let it merge into you and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Amen. You have to keep walking for the Lord and keep keeping his commandments, learning what to do and what not to do. Now, let's go to something very controversial. 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. One Corinthians eight verse four is every word that Paul wrote the accurate word of God. Well, we already saw that he got a little bit carried away about heads and hair, but at least he admitted that if it caused a problem, then don't worry about it. In chapter 8 here, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, but, and that there is no God but one, not three, but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, meaning there's many spirits, many demons, many rulers, many governors, many rulers and administrations, verse 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. And yet, and yet, we know that Jesus was worshipped when he was born and after the resurrection and before the crucifixion. The woman at his feet, washing his feet with the perfume, was worshiping him. The magi that came when they saw the star, they came and said they worshiped him. Jesus is the Father. Yet for us, for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom by whom are all things, and we exist through him. It puts a separation between the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because the Father put part of himself into Mary. He dwelt in the flesh, and God dwelt in the flesh, so there was a separation between the, the Spirit of God that stayed in heaven and the measure of God that came down upon earth, but it's still the same Spirit and the same person and the same being. Then we go to verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled, but God, I mean, but food will not commend us to God, and we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you 
who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple? Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things, sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Let's read that again here in verse 10. But if someone sees you who have knowledge, knowledge of what? Knowledge that we have one God, and he sees you dining in an idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things, sacrificed to idols? You would lead that person to eat things sacrificed to idols for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. You brought that person to ruin by eating first and you led him to eat and he is ruined. The brother for whom Christ died. Verse 12 And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if any food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. The words of Paul about eating things sacrificed to idols is pretty confusing. Pretty confusing. But it seems to indicate, at least to some extent, that if you are strong in the Lord, then you can exercise liberty to eat things, sacrifice to idols. But if somebody comes along and they have knowledge that there's one God, they're a true brother, but they're weak in their conscience. And so you lead them like Eve led Adam to go against his will, to go against his better judgment. And you lead that person to eat those things, sacrifice to idols, even as Eve led Adam to eat the forbidden food. But it's going against their conscience. It's going to God, it's going against what they believe. It's going against what they believe they should do. I know Adam said we should not eat this. But he failed to the convincing of Eve, her convincing words, and led him to fall. So Paul seems to say that as long as nobody is around, that we could eat things sacrificed to idols. But what did God say? We know in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament as well that it said that we're not to. But what about the New Testament other than the writings of Paul? 
Because Paul was not the only writer of the New Testament. What did Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what did Jesus say? What did Peter say? What did the other writers of the New Testament say? Because Paul is not infallible. And we must read every word. We must read every verse. We must read every chapter, every book of the Bible and get the whole picture, not just this one chapter or this and another chapter, but all of the Bible. So look at Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, verse 19. Acts 15, verse 19. Acts 15, verse 19. There was a Jerusalem council. James, the brother of Jesus, and I thank Peter as well and other men on the council, a council of elders in the church in Jerusalem. Verse 19, therefore it is my judgment, says James, this is James, the brother of Jesus Christ, the flesh and blood brother of Jesus Christ, who also was a true believer and true follower and was a high elder, an elder of the church, a pastor, a leader of the church, of the true church. Verse 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God. New converts, people that's just coming to accept Jesus as God. That we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. And he continues, and coming down to verse 28, verse 28, for it seemeth good to the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Ghost, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Here's the essentials. Here is what a Gentile who just come into the Lord must absolutely agree to in order to be baptized. These are the essentials. This is what we're going to put our foot down on. That if they want to come to the Lord and they're Gentile, we're not going to worry about circumcision, but we are going to worry about this. Verse 29 that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you, if you keep yourselves free from, the, from these such things, you would do well. Farewell. This was the decision of the council. Paul was not a member of the council. Paul, in some ways, had to be somewhat submissive to the council. The council was above him in the authority of the church. 
So if Paul disagrees with the council, which evidently he did, if Paul disagrees with the council, which word has more authority, Paul or the council? We know that Paul himself said that God has sent apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we know that Paul was an apostle and a prophet. But the Bible also says that the prophets should be subject to the prophets. Even true prophets and true apostles are subject to the other true prophets and true apostles. They are not subject to the lay members. You cannot vote out your pastor. That voting in and voting out your pastor that the Baptist church does is total nonsense. There is no words in all of Scripture, no words in Scripture does it indicate in any way, shape, or form that the church members vote in or out your pastor, your leaders, or even other members. All of that is total nonsense. The prophets and the apostles and the pastors are only subject to the other apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers, leaders, and to God himself. Paul should have submitted to this verdict of the council who was over and above him. But if you still want to think that Paul was right and the council was wrong, then look at book of Revelation chapter 2 and get the words of Jesus Christ himself. Can you get any higher up in the church than the head of the church himself, the high priest, the Lord, the Savior, the King, God himself? Revelation chapter 2 verse 14. Who has the deciding vote? Who has the deciding word in this matter? I would definitely say it's Jesus Christ. Revelation 2, 14. Revelation 2, 14. Jesus is speaking, and it says, but I have a few things against you to that particular church at Pagama. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the doctrine of uh, Balaam, Balcom, however you pronounce it, who kept teaching Balcom to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Then, verse 20, Revelation 2, verse 20, but I have this against you to the other church congregation, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads 
my bondservants astray so that they would commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Twice, Jesus says that he has this against those churches, those two different congregations, that, that he disagrees with their doctrine. These people are teaching the doctrine that we can eat same sacrifice to idols. And he says, I have this against you. Twice he says this. And notice in Acts 15 that the council said it twice as well at the beginning and the end of what James is saying. So it's it's written twice in Acts 15 and it's written twice in Revelation 2. Acts 15, spoken by James, written by Luke in Acts, spoken by James, written by Luke. Revelation 2, spoken by Jesus and written by John. So who are the witnesses that says we should not be eating things sacrificed to idols? The witnesses are Luke, James, and the Jerusalem Council, and John, who wrote Revelation, and Jesus himself. These are the many witnesses of that we should not eat things sacrificed to idols. Paul stands alone. There is nobody else in all of Scripture who agrees with Paul on that topic except for these two congregations who Jesus rebukes. Amen. Was Paul really like the Catholic Pope that we must proclaim every word that he said as the word of God and it is infallible? Hey, I respect Paul. I honor Paul. I have fought tooth and nail on behalf of Paul many years. Because there's a lot of people who completely hate and despise every word that Paul ever wrote. A lot of the Hebrew roots people, a lot of the Jewish people, and a lot of the Muslims. They believe that nothing Paul wrote has any authority. And I have defended Paul, and I have defended Paul, and I have defended Paul over and over. I have fought for the respect and honor and authority of, of the Apostle Paul. But he was not involved. I accept the words of Jesus Christ and the Jerusalem Council over Paul. Now, when the Jerusalem Council said we don't put no other burden upon the Gentile converts, other than this, does that mean that we should baptize people even if they don't agree to keep the seventh day? Even if they're going to keep keeping Christmas and Easter and Sunday and Trinity and all that? No. But one thing, not only was they talking about 
sacrificing to idols, but they also said as long as also that they keep themselves from immorality. Christmas and Easter is immoral. It is satanic worship. It is immorality. How can we baptize people if they're going to continue to worship the devil in these Assyrian, demonic, satanic holidays? It don't do no good to baptize them. And we must, in this end time, consider the amount of weight of evidence that has been passed down to us, not just through Moses alone, not just through Daniel alone, not just through Ezekiel alone and Isaiah alone and Matthew alone and Mark, because remember, all these different letters and books were all individual pages, individual scrolls that were eventually gathered together. And so each different congregation, each different generation and location upon the earth, they may have had only this and only that, only this piece and only that piece of the puzzle, only that particular scripture, only that particular prophet, only that particular apostle, only that particular amount of knowledge and understanding. But we now have all these scriptures. And we now have an understanding and ability to understand that no generation before us could. Not even Paul, not even the Jerusalem Council, not even Moses, Mark, Luke, or John. None of those were able to understand and receive the things that we can today. We must make decisions as the current council and as the current church and the leaders of the church of this time, of this generation, with all the information that we have that's been handed down to us and what God is currently saying with the conditions of the modern time and the conditions of the church and the needs of the church to now. Amen. And then, as far as sacrificing to idols and this food thing, this halal thing, let's go to Mark chapter 7. Because Mark 7 is used to say that there's nothing that we can eat, nothing that enters the mouth that can defile us. So what about this? Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verse 1. Mark 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and the scribes, some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come, when they had come from Jerusalem, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. But the Pharisees and all the Jews 
did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders, customs, and traditions of men, that they had to ceremonially wash their hands before they eat. This is not dealing with the ceremonial laws of the temple, abortion. This is dealing with tradition of man that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had come up with. That just before you eat a banana, you've got to wash your hands really, really, really good, and you have to do it a certain way. Come on, it's only going to take, I can swallow that banana with one bite. You won't make me wash my hands thoroughly. I can eat a little Debbie cake with one bite. I can eat a Reese's peanut butter cup with one bite, and you want me to take 15 minutes to wash my hands in a certain manner, in a certain way, with detail. And they were legalists in verse 4. And when they, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as washing of cups and pictures and, and copper pots and all this. This goes beyond just sanitation. This is not talking about sanitation. It's talking about ceremonial legalism, of doing things that the Pharisees had come up with. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They eat their bread with impure hands, ceremonially impure. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, Notice that the response of Jesus was, oh, I'm sorry we offended you. That was not his response, was it? Excuse me. People today read the verses of Paul saying that we should not offend our brother and all this, and they forget to consider that that Jesus and even Jeremiah was not concerned about whether or not they were offending people. Amen. And he did speak harshly. He called them names. There is no difference between calling them stupid and calling them hypocrites. It's two different meanings. But there's no difference that he was speaking very harshly. People have gotten on my case for using the word stupid. There's a reason I say that. And I will not allow any man or any woman to even attempt. I don't care how gentle they say it. I don't care how loving they say it. I don't care how they approach it. I will not allow any man, any woman, anybody anyone, to even attempt to influence what I do and do not say in a sermon. Only God can do that. Amen. Jesus did speak harshly and called them hypocrites, and he said, 
Rightly did Isaiah speak of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. In vain. People think they can worship God any way they want to. Sunday, pick a day of the week, Christmas, Easter, their own religion, their own denomination, their own way of thinking, what's right in their own eye. They think they can worship God any old way, and it don't matter to God that he accepts everything. He accepts all sacrifices. He accepts all praise and all worship. And, and, but it's not true. Our offerings must be holy and clean unto him. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts, the customs, the traditions of men. That is no difference than talking about Christmas and Easter and Sunday and Trinity and all that. No difference. No difference. I have used this verse all of my life since I was 10 years old to teach against Christmas and Easter. And yet people all my life have said, you take this out of context. It has nothing to do with Christmas and Easter. It has to do with washing of hands. But isn't the spirit, see, they're so focused on the letter. They look at the letter that is talking about washing of hands, and they accuse me of taking it out of context because they're focused on the letter. But the Spirit says that rather is talking about dishes, clothing, makeup, holidays, cars, animals, poker, movies, music. I don't care what it's talking about. The Spirit is still true and the point is still true. That people are worshiping God in vain, teaching the doctrines for doctrines, as doctrines, the traditions of men. Amen. Period. So people that have no idea what they're talking about. Amen. We have got to go with, why was Jesus saying that? Yes, the context is about washing of hands and pots and dishes out of ceremonial man's customs. But, but Jesus was going beyond just that. In his statements of quoting Isaiah's, it goes beyond just dishes and hands. It is all-encompassing of the way men behave or misbehave. Amen. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. And, and, and Jesus continues here and even takes it out of the context of dishes and washing and starts, starts talking about misuse of tithes. So he's not limiting it. He's not limiting, verse 7, to just washing. He continues and makes it part of even talking about even talking about misuse of tithes even. 
is Motai. It can be about Christmas and Easter. It's talking about all the different customs and traditions of, of paganism and false doctrines. Verse 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts. You're college people. You're fancy people. You're big shots. You're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. But Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Many things. Many, many things other than that. So he does not limit it just to money and dishes. There's many things that they do. So yes, we can use it for many topics, and not just washing. Now this korban is a Syrian term, korban. A Syrian term meaning given to God. I'm going to read the note here in my study Bible, not Alpha and Omega Bible, but a different study Bible. It says it's a term meaning given to God. It refers to any gift or sacrifice of money or goods uh, individual vowed to dedicate specifically to God as a result of such dedication of money or goods to be used only for sacred purposes. Okay, so what was happening is the Pharisees were seeing that their own parents were in need. Perhaps they were going hungry. Perhaps their parents were some kind of, of, a, of a major need. And they were forsaking the honor and the respect and the cure of the elderly. They were forsaking the need of, of their own family of their own people, of people in need, in order to claim that we, we've got to have all of this money for sacred purposes and is dedicated to God, but not to people in need. They were going by the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. For the spirit of the law says that the purpose of giving tithes is to help those people in need. Amen. Now, you still got to pay your tithes. He's not saying that they should not have paid their tithes. He, he was not teaching lawlessness. He was not teaching them to break the law of tithes. But if they had paid their tithes and then they, as 
the leaders of the church, as the council, as the people, as the, as the Pharisees, as the people with, uh, with direct line with the high priest, all they had to do was, was say to the high priest and to the council that my mother, my parents are in need. We pay our tithes, and the tithes are, are to be used for people in need, the poor and the widows and the orphans and people that are in need. We ask that you give unto my parents. They could have done that, but they didn't. They didn't because they worshipped the physical temple, the walls of the temple, the ground of the temple, the heel of the temple, the stones, the cement, and the roof, and the building, and the filling tiles. They worshipped the building and thought that they needed to build the building, like these churches today, and like the, the largest Baptist church, and that church, and that church. And it's like, let's add another section. Let's add on to the building. Let's just keep building it bigger and bigger and get a bigger steeple and a bigger sign. And let's put a fancy uh, sign in the yard that costs $3,000 just for the sign alone and not help the people in need. Amen. So it was, it was an abuse of tithes in that they were not using the tithes to help the people. Then he goes on in verse 14. After he called the crowds to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. So now he's going back to the topic of the ceremonially cleansing, washing of the pots and dishes, and ceremonially washing of the hands. He's not talking about uh, sanitation, but he's talking about ceremonially legalism. That there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Then the rest of that verse, verse 16, was added. So I'm not going to read verse 16 because verse 16 was added into the Bible. We know that to be true. Verse 17, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? You know, he was disappointed. He was grieved that they're lacking in understanding. They're lacking in the spirit. Lacking in understanding. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared, all foods clean. He declared, right then and there, that the clean, unclean meats, the pork, the shrimp, the catfish, all those things, he declared those things clean, right then and right there. Thus he declared 
all foods, all meats clean. That catfish, that pork, cannot defile you. It don't go in your heart. It goes in your stomach. It goes out your bowels. It's cast out to the drought. Verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts, the fornications, the thefts, the murders, the adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, uh, sexual immorality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. These are spiritual sins that you do in your flesh and in your mind. But this catfish, this pork, this washing of hands, these cleaning of pots, they cannot defile you. It goes in your stomach. So he, he changes topic from dishes and washing of hands into what you're actually eating, what you're actually putting in your stomach. So he's, he's, he's starting to talk about even the meats and the, and the foods now. So he did cleanse the animals. Now this verse is used by people to try to teach that eating of things that are sacrificed to idols cannot defile us. Now I'll tell you, explain to you why you should not use this to try to validate Paul's thinking that you can eat things sacrificed to idols, and that it cannot defile you because there's nothing. It's just food. How can it defile you? Well, for one thing, can marijuana defile you? Can drunkenness defile you? Can living a lifestyle of pouring liquor down your throat from morning to evening every day of your life, can that defile you? Absolutely. Can do can can do an LSD and heroin, crack cocaine. Hey, you put that in your mouth. Can it defile you? Absolutely. What if I eat make mushrooms with marijuana in it? It's just food with a herb, a natural herb that God made. Put it in my body, it goes it goes in, it goes out. How can that defile me? According to Jesus Christ, I can eat marijuana brownies, do hiring, do LSD, smoke cigarettes, smoke pot, be a drunkard, be an alcoholic. That's what people teach that Jesus taught, and that's not what Jesus taught. That's not what Jesus taught. He was talking about washing of dishes ceremonially, washing of hands ceremonially, clean and unclean meats, and declared the meats clean. He was not saying that you can go and take a Ouija board, play it, and just pray over it, and you'll be okay. That the prayer before you eat your meal is going to cleanse that demonic activity. That's not what he's saying. 
He's not saying you can pray before you play the Ouija board and still play the Ouija board. He's not saying that you can pray before you keep Christmas and Easter and still keep Christmas and Easter and it won't defile you. Things that are sacrificed to idols, which would be the Ouija board, the Christmas tree, the Easter egg, and the halal-marked products, all these things are sacrificed to idols. Christmas tree is sacrificed to idols. It's not killed, it's not strangled, but it is dedicated to idols. It is dedicated to Satan. The Easter egg is dedicated to Satan. The halal mark is dedicated to Satan. The Ouija board is dedicated to Satan. If you say that we can eat things sacrificed to idols, then you might as well say that we can play the Ouija board as long as we're not doing it to the devil, as long as we're just playing a game, as long as we're just playing an innocent, childless, uh, uh, childlike, innocent game, as long as we don't really do it to seek uh, magic, as long as we don't really do it to communicate with the dead, as long as we don't really do it to communicate with demons, just play a harmless game. It's what's in your heart. It's what's in your mind. You might as well just say that. And you might as well just say, you can put up a Christmas tree, you can put up a statue of Zeus, as long as you're just admiring it. It's what's in your heart, what's in your mind. It's what people say. You might as well just say, you might might as well just have a statue of Zeus in your house, but I'm not worshiping it. I just have it for decoration. I can have a tree in my house just for decoration. This is not right. Things that are dedicated to Satan, they are dedicated to Satan. Period. And they are not to be permitted in our house nor within our stones. Jesus was not teaching that we can eat things sacrificed to idols. Look at his own words in Revelation 2. Did Jesus contradict himself? No. But in Mark 7, he is not talking about eating things sacrificed to idols, things dedicated to Satan. But in Revelation 2, That's exactly what he's talking about. And he says, no, I don't like it. I don't approve of it. I rebuke it. This is what I don't like about your church, your congregation, and your ministers, is that you are teaching they can eat things sacrificed to idols. In this day and in this time of the last generation, the last generation of this age, when we are faced with a situation more drear, more drier, more drear, I 
try to pronounce it here in a minute, than any other generation that's ever existed upon this planet. A time when the book of Revelation will be entirely fulfilled in front of our eyes. People are going to have that mark of the beast in their forehead. People are going to be walking around with 666 in their forehead, but you won't be able to see it with your carnal eyes, but you'll be able to see it with your spiritual eyes that they are submitting and compromising with the devil. They are submitting and compromising with things that are dedicated to Satan, thinking that we can pray it away. Thinking that there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. Thinking that we can play with Ouija boards or play Halloween as long as we're not doing it to the devil or do Christmas and Easter as long as we're not doing it to pagan gods. But do it to God, worshiping him in vain with something that is dedicated to Satan. There is no difference, absolutely no difference between keeping Christmas and keeping Halloween playing a Ouija board, and purposely buying things or eating things that we know are marked with the Islamic mark of the beast. No difference. No difference. And if there is a difference, it is the mark of the beast eating things sacrificed to idols that is the grievous, more grievous, more severe sin. There are certain sins you don't kick people out of church for. But there are certain sins that you've got to put your foot down and don't even allow it in the door. Amen. Mark 7 is the accurate word of God. What Jesus said is the accurate word of God. What Paul said, if we're understanding him correctly, if it's not been corrupted, if it's not been added to and taken away by men over the centuries, and if we're understanding what Paul really, really, really said, and if we are really understanding it, that he's saying we can eat things sacrificed to idols, that he was wrong, and I'll say it, and I'll say it again. Paul was wrong. If we are truly understanding what he was trying to say. Yes, we are understanding it right. And I'm not entirely for sure that we are. But I will take the words of Jesus Christ over Paul any day. Amen. And remember last week, as you turn into Ecclesiastes, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes is over there next to Proverbs, right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Remember last week, and we're almost done. Remember last week that we talked about how that the book of Psalms. I'm not turning there right now, but 
last week we talked about Psalm 53 and Romans 3, where in Psalm 3, the person that wrote that song was singing about the frustration of the wicked, frustration of lost people, and how that there's no one good, no, not one, and how that he continued and eventually said it, eventually, eventually said that there's hope that Zion cometh, the Lord cometh, the Messiah's cometh. But, you know, he was talking about frustration, about the wicked, the laws. He was venting, he was frustrating. And so we can't take every verse of the Bible as the literal word of God or as the literal accurate or literal uh, uh, literal. We can't take every word literal. Sometimes it's just a man venting. Sometimes it's just frustration. And so when we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 15, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 15, then I said to myself, this is Solomon, then I say to myself, as is the fate of the fool, as is the fate of the fool, it is also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, both the wise and the, and the wisdom, the fool, all the different people, both wise people and foolish people, they'll all be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike, they both die. Verse 17. So I hated life, for the work which has been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is fertility and striving about wind. It's all in vain. Solomon was venting. He was, he was frustrated. He was saying, you know what? I'm wise. I'm a big shot. God's given me a lot of spiritual empowerment of wisdom. I'm rich, I've got all these women, I've got all these wives, I've got all these concubines, I'm a king, I've got gold, I've got a palace, I built the temple of God. But you know what? When I die, I won't be remembered. When I die, all this will be gone. I can't take it to the grave with me. Solomon knew that you don't go to heaven or hell. He knew that you died and go to sleep in the grave. He says so in the same book. But his outlook on life sometimes was very depressing. He had his mind a whole lot on the women and, and on, on the meaning of life and what happens when you die and stuff like that. And he, he let it get a little bit he got a little bit too carried away with it. In verse 18, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. I'm just going to leave it to someone else. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. 21. And when there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all of his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. He's He's venting. He's frustrated. This is not the word of God. This is not God dictating, write this down. This is not the doctrine of God. God is not speaking here and saying that your work and your labor is in vain. Amen? God is not saying, Solomon, I'm speaking to you you in your mind. I'm speaking to you in your heart. I want you to tell the people that life is hopeless, that your labor and your work is in vain. You might as well lay down and die. This is not the word of God. This is the frustration of a man that's on his way to walking away from God. We know that Solomon walked away from God. He died lost as far as what we know. He even went and started worshiping false gods before he died. In verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself, tell himself, convince himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. And who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? So now he's coming to his senses. He's coming back to his father, David, his teaching. Yeah. I'm messing around a little bit with a computer connection. I know you can still hear me on the internet and phones. But he's coming back to his senses here. But he's been venting, he's been frustrated, but now he's coming back to his senses. Verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner, to the lost, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. But this too is vanity and striving about wind. So he still has a dismal outlook. 
chapter 3, verse 1, there is a appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event or purpose under heaven. Time to give birth and a time to die. Now, that's true. That's accurate. It's very profitable for doctrine. And a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as laws. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything in his time. Now let's go down. We'll keep reading here. we we'll keep reading here. <clears throat> Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also said eternity in his heart, God has. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all of his labor. It is the gift of God. That is a good thing. That's what he's saying is a good thing to do. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it or to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Verse 15, that which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. So he's saying God is in control. That man really can't hardly do nothing of ourselves and and we can't really fathom the height of God or the depths of God, that we're just mere men, that we're just clay, that we're just here to labor one day and gone tomorrow. That is all vanity. This is not a not a good outlook. This is not the outlook that we should have today as far as these negative parts. We'll read one more verse by going to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 28. While you turn into Romans 8, verse 28, I'm reminded that there's a scripture somewhere that is written somewhere that says something like, that whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Amen. If I'm a farmer working in a field, I should do, do so unto the Lord. That if I'm a taxi cab driver, that I should do so as unto the Lord. Knowing 
that the next person that gets in my taxi cab could be the person that I lead to Jesus Christ. That if I'm working at McDonald's, that I am to do so unto the Lord. Because knowing that 10% of that paycheck is going to go to help provide Bibles to people and to deliver the gospel of the kingdom of God into all the world. But whatever we do, that we should do as unto the Lord, that we are to rejoice, and again I say, rejoice, that we are to put our minds on positive things, not upon the negative, not upon the vanity, not upon death, but we are to put our minds upon positive things, as, as it says in Philippians 4, that we should put our minds on the things that are of good report, things that are praiseworthy. Amen. We should put our minds on the things that God has done, the ancient prayers, that we actually do have a job even if we hate it, that we actually do have income, that we actually do have a disability check, that we actually do have food stamps, that we actually do have a bicycle, that we actually do have shoes even if they're torn, that we actually do have a shack to live in, that we actually do have a cardboard box to live in, Some people can't even find a decent cardboard box. That whatever we have, that we are to be content with what we have, with the clothing and the remnant that we have, the scripture says. We are not to consider just Ecclesiastes all by itself. But we are to consider the entire Bible. We are to consider the good things and the praise report. To rejoice, and again I say rejoice, and do all things unto the Lord. We should be a rejoiceful people and a thankful people, a people full of gratitude, a people who are looking up unto the Lord and putting our minds on the Lord, not as Solomon, that was putting his mind on death and vanity and women and false gods. Hey, Solomon had some good doctrine to share. He had some good wisdom to share in the book of Proverbs. But he was still just a man, not in And not every word he wrote was really that beneficial to us, especially the Song of Solomon. I think Solomon was just like Paul, that sometimes he was just going by his thoughts, his opinions, and how, what part of life he was dealing with at the time. A man writing things down from his heart, from his mind. And if it be inspired of God, and if every word of Solomon be inspired of God, then it should be profitable for teaching, do not be like Solomon. If it's inspired, And if it's profitable, do not repeat the mistakes and the bad attitude of Solomon. Do not repeat the mistakes of Paul, of eating things sacrificed to idols. Don't take every word of the Bible literal. We're not really going to see a seven-headed beast, ten-horned beast rise up on the Mediterranean Sea. 
life is really not in vain. There is a purpose for everything under the sun. Even even Solomon said that as he was going back and forth in his mind. In Romans 8 here, Romans 8 verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together. It's not in vain. To work together for those for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is the creator. He has a reason for all things. Let us not become distraught, down and distressful, just because of a certain verse in the Bible that we're taking too literal. So we have shown you some places where... It is literal, where it's symbolic, where it's men venting, and where it's men's opinions and customs and traditions. Wherever we read in the Bible, let's consider the entire text from A to Z, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelation 22, verse 21, the last verse of the book of Revelation. Let's consider every verse not just the part that you want to teach and the part you want to believe in, but consider all the verses of the entire Bible and get the big picture. And that is the way to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your forbearance. I hope everybody has a safe and enjoyable weekend. And for you people in America, you have a safe and enjoyable 4th of July. We are planning, as I said in the newsletter, to go downtown, enjoy some country music, bluegrass music, and uh, some food, maybe a funnel cake or two, or a hot dog, or a sausage or two. And, enjoy ourselves and, and get out of the house for a while. We deserve it. We deserve to get out of the house and, and out and away and, uh, and ease our mind and relax and have fun. Life is short. I think people should be serious about the work of God, but I also think think that we also need to soak up the sun and enjoy life. Amen. All work and no play makes Pastor Tim a dull pastor, <laughs> a wore-out pastor. All work and no play makes Pastor Tim a pastor that's laying bedridden in bed and can't move. So I need to rest and relax and enjoy life a little bit. And that encourage you to do the same. Have a good weekend and good rest of your seventh day. Love you very much. Thank you for your prayers. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.